This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to Think About It. I'm very excited to be sitting here in New York City in person with Paul Edwards. So first of all, Paul, thank you for making time. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. So Paul is an assistant professor at NYU, where I also teach, uh, who is just starting uh, at the end of this term in English and Dramatic Literature, you said, right? Yeah. And your area is, um, I guess in large terms, broad terms, um, sort of early modernity, 20th century. And the work that I know, which you've done, is kind of the the way the Harlem Renaissance shapes, impacts, influences, does something in its broader European context, right? Yep, right. Yeah, it's uh, effects in Germany in the 20s and 30s, sort of across uh, the political bounds of uh, liberal democracy as well as within fascism. And you are, you have written on, and the the forthcoming book, as I see, is called The Black Wave, The New Negro Renaissance in Interwar Germany, which is about especially appearance of performers, musicians, artists, actors, etc., on German stages who come from the African-American larger context, right? Uh, that's right. So the ways in which uh, they brought what we would call black modernity to German stages and to film and the ways that Germans had to reconcile their conceptions of African primitivism with American cosmopolitanism. Then we're right with our topic. So today I asked Paul to come here to talk about Toni Morrison, the novelist, um, uh, writer, author, as a critic. And the book that I wanted to talk to you about, because it's just a book that's been really influential for me. It's been influential, I think, in literary studies, but maybe not quite in the way that I would have expected, um, that she gave as a set of lectures in, I think, 1991 called Playing in the Dark, uh, Whiteness and the Literary Imagination. And this book, I remember, but I am not totally sure whether I'm mythologizing my own past. I think she gave these lectures at Harvard University. That's right. Yeah. And I think I attended them, and <laughs> I had really not much of an idea what was happening. Toni Morrison was Toni Morrison, but she wasn't a superstar. She was a very, very well-recognized, famous mm-hmm. writer. And 
I just remember being in the room and thinking something is happening, something is shifting, but I didn't quite, I couldn't quite put my head in it. But so, <laughs> in any case, I've been reading this book for now, whatever it is, uh, 30, yeah, 30 years. years. Yeah. And maybe we can start there. What is Morrison setting out to do? And she's <laughs> at this time a professor at Princeton. She's a very accomplished writer. That's she's right. been an editor. She's had many jobs. And she's sort of trying to say we have missed a major part of American literary history. That's right. I think what one way we could sort of look at what she's doing in Playing in the Dark as a lecture series as well as as in a book is to really, um, instead of, I think, what we often think of in the academy as sort of making space for unheard voices, what she's saying is actually there have been voices that have have been represented and reproduced across the American canon. And it is of interest to us the fact that these voices have... um, not been recognized as being operated and used within sort of white authorship. So the ways in which um, uh, Hemingway or Edgar Allan Poe and, uh, you know, she's got really interesting examples in Willa Cather that these are authors who we often sort of, yeah, view in the canon, view the ways in which that they are um, thinking about America or Americana and at the same time, they are clearly dealing with, and as uh, the title of the book says, like playing with uh, concepts of blackness. So first, the book is not a kind of effort to resurrect sort of overlooked or forgotten texts. This is not a book on sort of lost treasures in the canon written by <laughs> African-American writers. It's actually, as you said, it's looking at canonical American writers. I think they were canonical for at least 100 years, whether they're canonical today. So Faulkner, Hemingway, Poe, and Mm -hmm. Cather are really her main references in a way? Yeah, they're her main references. I think there's also, uh, understandably, a lot to do with uh, figures like Mark Twain. And what we see her doing is... I think think maybe to sort of reset, I think a lot of the ways that... Um, we see people engaging with Toni Morrison are the way that she makes sort of black voices really evident. That from Sula, Bluest Eye, Tar Baby, and especially Beloved, which is around the corner from Playing in the Dark, that she's trying to recapture uh, the possibilities of black representation, uh, black identity sort of within um, American spaces. But I think at the same time, Playing in the Dark is really exposing that you know, she's not the first author uh, to think about blackness. And obviously, as a black woman, she's adding so much more. But the fact that a lot of these authors are, in fact, um, fixated and thinking about blackness and are fully aware of the black presence in the United States, but also the fact that these authors often have some form of a crutch, that they are sort of leaning on blackness in a really fascinating and at sometimes absolutely terrifying way to sort of think about um, their own positionality. Well, what does blackness do to whiteness? And so there's something in these, you know, incredibly short lectures that I think is really revelatory in how we think about white authorship. And I think sort of the big question of often a black author is a black intellectual is like, why are you always making it about race? And I think that Morrison sort of turns that around and says, well, we weren't the first people to really make it about race. It's actually sort of evident and quite large within sort of a white American Let me ask you one thing about what you just said. As a black woman writer, Mm -hmm. she says two things that are just maybe for our listeners are kind of interesting. She says, I will be accused of kind of having an agenda. Uh And she said, I will let this accusation 
didn't stand. Yes. However, the evidence of this short book, the very <laughs> short book, is race and racialized characters, and especially black imagined figures, are mm-hmm. all over American literature mm-hmm. in this project of self-invention. So she says, it's not my thing that I sussed out these things <laughs> in these texts. It's there, it's present. And then the second thing she says, and it's been systematically, studiously either overlooked mm-hmm. or kind of rendered insignificant. And the project, which mm-hmm. there's a couple projects she's describing. One project is this invention of American identity as kind of uncharted territory, a new person, this Emerson idea. We don't mm-hmm. have a history. We're inventing our own history. We're giving ourselves our identity. And she said, this project needs something else to prop it up. Right. Yes. And the first accusation, just to stay with this for a moment, because mm-hmm. in our contemporary moment, 2022, there are lots of charges around this, like mm-hmm. sort of people come with their agenda, their identity shapes their scholarship. Mm-hmm. And I like the way she just says, I may be accused of this. Mm-hmm. I let the accusation stand. Yes. No, I mean, I think it's sort of as a beautiful statement to say, yes, I have an agenda. And I think that, as you pointed to, that addendum is 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 key, which is that but it's really there. You know, there's the, it's sort of the, uh, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean uh, <laughs> they're not, you know, they're, they're not after you. Uh, I know I just messed that up, but. No, but you're right. Yeah. I mean, like, there's something about that sort of element that I think is not everyone gets to say that and and not everyone gets to follow, not, not everyone is able to follow through on that sort of statement. And following through is sort of like to give sort of our listeners a sense of this book. The tone of this book is really interesting to mm-hmm. me. It's it's kind of um, it's never apologetic for what it's doing. Right. It's never defensive. Mm-hmm. It keeps on saying, and I think this is the really a, a major claim she's making. I can enrich our understanding mm-hmm. of how literature contributes to this project of American identity. Mm-hmm. I don't diminish it. I'm not criticizing. I'm not saying these people have a problem, although they have a problem. But the problem is really interesting mm-hmm. rather than, oh, my God, racist caricatures in these texts. This right. is bad. She right. says, and this is what she says in the beginning of the book also, I'm not writing as a critic as much, but as a novelist. I'm saying, mm-hmm. what do these things do in these books? Yeah, and I think the fact that she's she positions herself, you know, not only as a black woman, but as an author, and that what she's doing is thinking through authorship. She's thinking through what does it mean to sort of write characters? What does it mean to sort of have characters do specific things? She's able to, at once, I think, use her lectures to... To, to do actual literary criticism, but to think about what is it that I think she almost explicitly says, you know, this is about what authors do. And I'm thinking about uh, how characters and ideas sort of operate within uh, text, but as an author, not as a critic. You know, that being said, I think there's some really powerful and potent ways in which, you know, that can't help but be literary criticism. And right. it can't help, in some respects, also to almost be something like performance studies. Um, whenever I read Play in the Dark, I think back to also Eric Lott's Love and Theft. And to think about that part of what Eric Lott writes about are the ways... So what is this? Oh. To give us a reference? Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. So Eric Lott is, a, is an academic. Uh, his, his first major book is on blackface in the 19th century. And the title of his book, Love and Theft, is about the idea of sort of black culture is you know loved, but it's also stolen. It's, it is something that is appreciated in, you know, 
in certain context, and blackface is about the appropriation, but also the sort of appreciation of black mm-hmm. culture. And of course, it's an incredibly uh, complex argument that is not simply, you know, the platonic ideal of love. But I see that Toni Morrison is also engaged in sort of the ways in which um, authorship is going to use the tools that are available and it's going to show a certain type of appreciation for what these different identities and different concepts can do. And so um, that can be a mix of the sort of racist, incredibly terrifying caricature of blackness, but it can also be sort of this interesting uh, stand-in where the figure actually, for all intents and purposes, isn't really black, but blackness is going to be used as a counterpoint to whiteness. And again, at times terrifying, at times deeply troubling, but I think she sees that there's something um, useful and powerful as authors wield these uh, concepts. And terrifying maybe... What... In the Willard Cather story. So this is uh-huh. called yeah. Safir and the Slave Girl. Safir and the Slave Girl, a yeah. late novel that she basically says critics mostly dismiss and mm-hmm. say Willard Cather kind of not so great anymore. Yeah. And you're thinking it's published in the 40s, I think? It's her last novel, yeah. And 1940s? Yeah, it's 1941. And you're thinking uh, this is a book about a, wo- a white woman mm-hmm. Who somehow wants to show up her husband's affection and love, and basically wants to destroy this opportunity for him to rape an enslaved girl. Well, so it's it's it it is partially that, and you know it is an interesting story. And I think the first thing to sort of point to is that the story is called Safira and the Slave Girl, and so Safira is this uh, woman with. Uh, dropsy. She is mostly confined to bed in a wheelchair, and. Morrison points to the fact that the slave girl, whose name is Nancy, is immediately sort of dropped in the title as 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 not important, right? So the novel should be called Safira and Nancy, mm-hmm. but instead it is, you know, proper name and subject position. And Morrison looks to the ways that uh, the character of Nancy, the slave girl, is is moved around in a way that really denies not only the personhood of the enslaved, I mean, for a novel of the 1940s, you know, this is uh, 80 years after the Civil War, um, it marks the ways in which not only Nancy, but Nancy's family is, um, isn't is real. Uh, one of the things Morrison talks about yeah. is that yeah. uh, Nancy's mother does not act like a black mother. And it's not simply like there are obviously multiple ways in which one could be a black mother, but that there is a real... Uh, disregard for how Nancy's mother is able to even comprehend Nancy. And there's a real separation of of womanhood between the two of them, especially as it comes to the concept of sexual violence, that Nancy's mother uh, doesn't seem to care, doesn't even right. notice. Nancy can't talk to her about it. And, it's in, and it goes beyond simply the sort of social death elements of American slavery, but really sort of posits that um, there is no relationship between a black mother and, and her daughter. And Bea Morrison does two things. She says, okay, we could think, okay, this is Willard Cather just reproducing a stereotype, Mm -hmm. but she's saying here she runs into a problem as a novelist. Mm -hmm. We don't quite believe something. And in a way, she just says, well, even if you're creating a caricature, it sort of has to function in a way. And Mm -hmm. something in the narrative doesn't quite work. And I I found that so 
really fascinating about this project that she keeps <laughs> on saying here, the novelist Hemingway, Faulkner, Twain, whatever, they run into problems. Mm-hmm. And for me, there was always a sense Morrison is taking these people incredibly seriously. And she's not mm-hmm. just saying these are white authors who basically have some problem with race or they right. have some racism in them anyway. She's, that's not her project at all. She's mm-hmm. just saying it doesn't really work as a novel. Yes, right. And it could work in a strange way. Mm-hmm. That, that something could work, but what can't they allow to happen? And that, mm-hmm. there she switches kind of, in my view, from a critic to a novelist saying mm-hmm. this is not how the a novel doesn't work this way. Right, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, to the point of Toni Morrison as, I guess, not only as an author, but as a as a uh, teacher of creative writing that, you know, if if Willa Cather or anyone else was to sit in her classroom, it's like, <laughs> how could you have a story that seems to give some personhood to these black women but can't make that leap of caring black mother to, to, to black child is really, is, is a real problem of the novel, as you yeah. said. And of course, um, the thing that also happens in this text is that Willa Cather appears at the end of it. She is a character within her own novel and that the care and concern of the black characters are toward Willa Cather as a character. And so instead of a um, a, a moment of re- a reunion between black mother and black child because the black child uh, runs away near the end of the text, it is about the sort of reunification of the slave family, the fact that you can have the enslaved uh, individuals return to the enslaver family and that it it's that reunification. It is this sort of odd, uh, really late version of sort of the lost cause myth sort of imagined into this text. And that myth is sort of that... So this young woman girl runs away to Canada and then <laughs> years later comes back. Yes, yeah. And then she sort of makes up or something. Right, yeah. I mean, the the text sort of uh, doesn't explicitly say this, but it's almost as if the black family needs to apologize to the white family. Um, even as uh, Safira's own daughter is involved in the abolitionist cause, helps Nancy run away, uh, that uh, what needs to happen is, in some respects, that Safira needs to die so that these white characters can actually uh, reunify. So, there's a sort of interesting generational element to the text as well that the uh, mother dies, the father dies, the uh, rapist uh, uh, brother-uncle figure uh, dies in the Civil War mm-hmm. um, and on, in oddly heroic terms. And so the remaining characters are sort of left to pick up the pieces in, uh, in, in sort of recon- the Reconstruction era in a way that, again, is really reconciling more whiteness than it is towards reconciling or um, avenging the uh, the issues of enslavement for black individuals. And this novel, so I'd never heard of this novel until I read Morrison's text. So I'd read My Antonia and then I read Our Pioneers. I think mm-hmm. My Antonia was for me like a revelatory sort of the Midwest as a site, although mm-hmm. Willa lived in the village in New York City. <laughs> sort, of, sort of an amazing right. story and then a couple short stories. If you think about that novel, is that a novel that's readable today? Because I think Morrison's project is really to never go in this direction of saying, we shouldn't read these books, Mm -hmm. this is just some racist fantasy, or this is absurd, or it doesn't work out. She said it doesn't work out, but the not working out, she links that 
consistently in this book to say mm-hmm. something the, in, in the American project doesn't work out mm-hmm. and keeps on being covered over. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I think one of the things that's really helpful, and like you, I did not read Safira and the Slave Girl until after I read Playing in the Dark. And I really appreciate the fact that Toni Morrison, as I think a lot of scholars would say, that just because a text is racist or has a variety of caricatures or is bad, we shouldn't read it. And I've taught Safira and the Slave Girl with Toni Morrison, and students, I think, are amazed to read a bad book <laughs> right. uh, that, you know, there's, I think, the idea of the student that because the professor is teaching it, they implicitly endorse it. Must it. it must be good. Uh, I must agree with some version of the politics of at least one of the characters in the book. And I think that reading that reading that novel with Playing in the Dark has students like, oh, my God, Toni Morrison's right, and also really fascinated with the problems of the book. And, um, you know, I think that's a real joy sometimes in teaching is being able to teach books that you don't like or books right. that have real problems right. and for students to sort of, uh, like Toni Morrison, sort of fixate on them for a bit and try to sort of uh, understand the the problems of that novel. Um I've taught O Pioneers. I've taught uh, My Antonia, and I love those books. I mean, they're they, they are really well written, and they're sort of really fascinating in how they handle immigrant identities and the creation of America. And so there's that sort of irony that Safira and the Slave Girl is also technically about that. It's interested in like what makes what makes an America, uh, but it, but it's a it is sort of an odd failure in how it, it can't. Um, reconcile blackness into its into its story. And this idea of whiteness that she puts, so I guess it's in the title of the book, right? Whiteness mm-hmm. and the literary imagination. There's two things. It basically says, here's America, mm-hmm. political project, cultural project, and there's literature. Mm-hmm. And Morrison, who's a writer, sort of says, literature is vitally important for this idea of who Americans are. Mm-hmm. And whiteness in this book is this kind of... Um, blankness, senselessness, a certain kind of sort of stupor of not recognizing difference. This mm-hmm. kind of, it keeps on holding on. And then she says, in almost all these books, you have these grand metaphors of whiteness, the end of the Edgar Allan Poe story she starts with, the end mm-hmm. of some Faulkner, the end of some Saul Bellow. Mm-hmm. But that this, this idea of self-identity is staked on itself, mm-hmm. self-generated, she said yeah. it is such a powerful mythology. And then I think she says, and all these authors give you all the hints to say this is, you always need difference for that. And that difference mm-hmm. happens to be racialized right. in many cases. Mm-hmm. Probably there are other instances. I'm sure someone could write sure, a book about right. indigenous identity, about mm-hmm. la- Latino identity, gender as a category. Right. But if we start with whiteness, she's she's actually writing a book about whiteness in America. Mm-hmm. And saying, yeah, yeah. Which is so it's not in some ways. I'm just curious, does it fit into African American studies? Because she said, I'm not adding something to African American studies. Mm-hmm. That's its own field. That's wonderful. Mm-hmm. That's great. That should exist. But she said, that's not my project here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think, um, I think the sort of oddity, and, you know, I, I, I want to sort of be careful how I say this, but there does seem to be, I think, an element of, at least within African American studies, and I think for African American scholars, there is this sort of el- this idea of, 
Well, because I do it, it is, it is African-American studies or it is black studies that the, the identity of the person sort of infuses the work with the fact that it is actually, in fact, engaging with that. And obviously there are some issues with that and how that might be constructed. Um, you know, Audre Lorde sort of famously commented on, you know, what does it mean for her to teach Jane Austen? And, uh, you know, the idea that, you know, white author, sorry, white white teachers, white academics should, in fact, be teaching black authors. And but also the question of like, what does it mean to actually be black and to teach white authorship? What does it mean to teach Jane Austen? And I see that as a parallel to Toni Morrison, which is to say, as a black woman, one of the most profound writers of the late 20th, and early 21st century, to write a book, to give a series of lectures on whiteness, um, you know, could could anyone else do that other than sort of this amazing uh, this amazing <laughs> author herself? And so I see this as like a really important text within Black Studies. I I do, as I said, I do teach it. I do it for my independent studies, and I think what students come away with is this recognition of a authorial blind spot as well as perhaps a blind spot the students have actually had themselves. So especially if it's a class that we've been reading sort of canonical text for a while, and then we come and read Playing in the Dark later in the semester, they're like, okay, wait, can we go back and look at Benito Serino? Can we sort of understand that this text, which is about a slave revolt on a ship by by, um, Herman Melville, but the slave revolt is really weird. It, it's not how slave revolts happen, or at least not how they should look or could look. And in fact, is this interesting sort of theatrical stage that we find uh, the uh, the formerly enslaved engaging with their enslavers. And, and isn't it the book where they re- they rebel, take over the ship, mm-hmm. pose as running the ship, yes, get somebody else to help them because they're in trouble now, and then there's this kind of are you really running the ship and the white people who have survived this revolt have to kind of manage the ship under the control of the black formerly enslaved people? Right. So it's all about identity, loyalty, and this Mm -hmm. kind of reckoning, like who is really on whose side here? So it's not a slave revolt, like black people revolting, white Mm -hmm. people get beaten or not. Right, yeah. Yeah. So, So instead of, you know, the... Uh, Amistad case or Nat Turner, where uh, in the case of the Amistad case, you know, you you murder most of the crew, but keep alive the people who can actually pilot the ship yeah. and, and try to go back to Africa, or try to get to a safe coast. And instead, in Benito Serino, uh, the 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 slave rebellion uh, keeps. A fair amount of the crew alive, but they are approached by an American ship, and so they have to put on ostensibly a play. They had to right. sort of pretend that the um, their white captors are in charge and that the black individuals are still enslaved. Mm-hmm. And as, as readers of the 21st century who uh, know a lot more about what slave revolts look like, especially on ships, it, it, is, it is completely odd and weird. And it's interesting to watch this American captain not recognize uh, that that there's been a slave revolt. And this is not, not only this is not how black people act, but this is not how white people act uh, <laughs> involved in the slave trade. And so I think it's a really interesting text that I think really speaks to what Morrison talks about, which is that a really smart writer like Melville can sort of point to the sort of elements in which uh, whiteness and blackness are um, 
are uh, reflected in each other, but do a different type of work that what black authors, uh, the black characters in uh, Benito Serino are operating under a different set of understandings and ideas than the white authors or the white captives in in Benito Serino again. And I think that this is a really interesting element that Morrison's bringing out, which is that white authors will find themselves doing something really interesting and perhaps troubling with blackness that black authors, um, it's not that they avoid it, it's just it's not in view that they could do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And these black characters, let's say, in this Melville story, then Mm -hmm. there's... Bill T. Jones, the choreographer, did this piece recently where he remembered oh, yeah. that Pip is yeah, a Pip. cabin yeah. boy mm-hmm. who's African of African descent. We don't know African American, presumably, mm-hmm. in Moby Dick. And then is cast out drifting at sea. And mm-hmm. Bill T. Jones actually in this piece he did recently at the New York New York City in the Armory said, I didn't remember this character for a yeah. long time, for years. There's also this interest. Morrison keeps on saying something like, mm-hmm. We have been trained to overlook. Mm-hmm. These things. So part of what I always thought her, maybe this is why it resonated with me when I was in college, it's kind of what we would call sort of a deconstructive reading practice. There's right. a little character that will unravel this entire narrative. Mm-hmm. Little in a way of, it's not, it's a maybe a minor character. Mm-hmm. But this character has an incredibly important reach ultimately for what he right. needs to fulfill this really vital function. Yeah. And when you're saying sort of what these black characters do in these white texts, let's say white author texts, Mm -hmm. they're doing much more than what even the authors intended. Mm -hmm. And there I think Morrison is really just this incredibly powerful critic and very imaginative critic. She says, well, let's look at what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And who knows what Hemingway or what Willa Cather really wanted to do, what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And that's how she talks about her own writing always. She said, my character's... They just started making me do things. I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to go there. It's painful or yeah. pleasurable or joy. And I kept on thinking it's my experience. And then I realized I cannot put my experience. Mm-hmm. And there she's really great when saying American literature is full of these characters that go beyond what we call the author's intention. Mm-hmm. So she sidelines this whole project. Is Hemingway racist? I don't care. Like, I care in some ways, but I don't really right. care. Yeah. Is Willa Cather like writing this it, it sort of, is this a dumb novel? Is this a brilliant novel? That's mm-hmm. not the point. The novel does something on its own. Right. Yeah. And I think that we find, I think, especially in... So I, I also saw the Bill T. Jones performance, and I thought it was pretty amazing in its sort of various tools of the stage. And I think it's really interesting that he did set it up as, like, do you remember Pip? He's sort of this constant refrain that he sort of says to various performers on stage, like, I don't remember Pip. Do you remember Pip? And, of course, you know, uh, Melville's Moby Dick is, you know, starts off with identity, you know, call me Ishmael. So we sort of are immediately introduced to a character and perhaps one of the most famous lines in American literature, which is, like, someone self-identifying. And Pip as a character, as a young black boy on, um, on the ship, is... Um, is constantly disregarded um, as 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 is said in the piece, as is clear in the novel. You know, Pip is brought on board one of the harpooning uh, boats, and uh, during various moments, he jumps out uh, out of fear. And Melville, as a writer, who I, I really really enjoy, and I love the ways in which he writes about vulnerability. That clearly Pip is a character who is experiencing incredible amounts of vulnerability and a lot of disregard from the uh, mostly white crew. Um, 
of the ship. And the fact that what happens to Pip is that he eventually gets left at sea. He is, I think what's called turtled, is that he is able to survive by keeping his head uh, above water in a capsized um, lifeboat. And he loses all language. And he is a character who... uh, gained sympathy from Ahab because of his sort of otherworldly denaturalized language. And I think that's a pretty phenomenal element of the text is this sort of connection between a vengeful, uh, at times villainous captain and this uh, uh, traumatized black boy even as uh, Ahab is, you know, has mechanized and has riled his crew on this, you know, path of revenge towards this whale, that Pip is somehow outside of that uh, that dichotomy. I think it's really interesting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I think it sort of speaks to the different ways that different authors think about blackness. I think blackness can be sort of this binary with whiteness, or it can sort of present itself as uh, alterity, that there is another way in this world, that... Uh, whatever mechanisms are operating within whiteness, blackness has perhaps these other mechanisms that are not necessarily oppositional, but offer some type of, um, you know, offer difference. Yeah, but that's, can you say a little bit more about that? That's interesting. So it's not like there's a there's white identity and black people are poised against it mm-hmm. in some otherness or something. But Morrison kind of sketches out all these different ways. And in mm-hmm. some ways, you, you come away reading this short book, think there's no uniformity at all. Mm-hmm. to black characters, even in white right. fiction. Yeah. They all do so many different things, both for the for the plot, let's say, for the construction of the novel, and they mm-hmm. do different things as characters. Right. And I think, you know, a, a, uh, I, I, I'm trying to avoid saying a good novel too much, but, you know, I, I, I think a, a good novel or a good author is aware that, um, you know, even in sort of classical uh, novel criticism, it's it's never good enough just to sort of say, well, this character is the opposite of that character. And right. I think that the critical lens often engages with, um, you know, this character is, in fact, very much like our main character, the protagonist, or is, in fact, uh, it is revelatory that, you know, in a maybe a Jungian sense, they are the shadow, which is like this is a character that can get away with the things the main character can't do. Um a shadow in what sense? Can you say a little bit more about that? Uh, so uh, uh, when I think about sort of like Carl Jung's idea, the shadow that, you know. No, the... we're really outside of yeah. academic territory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Carl Jung, like this unspeakable <laughs> name in academia. I know. I'm supposed, <laughs> to say, I'm supposed to say Freud and Lacan and you believe it at that. Stick with the canon. Yeah. Exactly. Those but... are the <laughs> renegade <laughs> anarchist thinkers. Oh, I, I love it. But I, I, there's something I think about. Union thought, which I think is really helpful in terms of narrative discourses, which is that, you know, the idea of the shadow that there could be a character or force within a novel that is not simply one character is good, one character is evil, but the uh, whatever the repressive mm-hmm. structures or elements that perhaps pervade the novel mm-hmm. uh, need some form of outlet as well as in a novel. And, you know, by no means do I think Tony Morrison is a mm-hmm. union, mm-hmm. but I think there's some element that we could sort of say, like, okay, there are, in fact, these shadow characters that mm-hmm. um, perhaps Morrison is pointing to. I think, um, you know, she writes a little bit about Twain. I mean, everyone yeah. does write about Twain and everyone writes about Huck Finn. But, you know, I think that there's a way that 
the relationship between uh, Jim and Huck has become such an important part of the American canon about uh, thinking about race, thinking about adulthood. Uh, you know, Jim is an adult man. He has uh, a family that is fully revealed in a text. Yeah. Um, the fact that Huck himself has a father, but that's an incredibly troubling, terrible relationship, and that Jim begins to function as a father. I mean, there's some ways in which... Um, the text is thinking, uh, Twain is thinking about the fact that Huck needs a father and that father figure turns into uh, what he's able to have with Jim. But the thing that I think is interesting about that novel is that we could sort of see that relationship between the two of them. But I think we often forget, I think some scholars, of course, do write about this, but Tom Sawyer is in that book and Tom Sawyer remains in that book very much a child as Huck Finn has to sort of grow up. And so there are multiple instances in this text in which if we were to think about Huck Finn growing up or if we were to think about Jim as the enslaved and being quote-unquote childlike, what we actually discover are two characters who are on a journey of incredible maturation and are confronted at the end of the text with Tom Sawyer, who has not grown at all because he hasn't been on this journey. And Mm -hmm. so there's the famous evasion at the end of Huck Finn, where Tom Sawyer wants to enact this incredibly romanticized uh, escape um, narrative with Jim. And what the reader knows, what Huck knows, what Jim knows, is that actually for Jim to escape is incredibly easy. He has to sort of just open a door and he can walk out. But... Uh, Tom wants to enact this terrible, uh, not in itself racist fantasy, but he wants to sort of enact the Count of Monte Cristo uh, with Jim as the Mm -hmm. Count. And what's fascinating, and I think to bring it back to Toni Morrison, is that Jim and Huck seem very aware on a relatively good level about how American racism works. Tom does not. (laughs) And so Tom's idea for um, Jim's escape, I think, really relies on actually Tom as a character is playing in the dark. He has this idea of what he can do with blackness, but he's incredibly wrong. He does not at all understand that uh, Jim's life as being enslaved is incredibly vulnerable in a way that Hmm. um, uh, Huck has learned that and has begun to appreciate that. And so I think that's a really interesting element, either thinking about um, the shadow, where what I'm trying to argue is that yeah. Tom is actually the shadow to Huck, not yeah. Jim, yeah. and that the relationship between Huck and Jim is actually a really uh, complex and indebted one across sort of multiple vectors of thinking about family and uh, partnership. Well, for students, it's great to map out to say sort of that Huck has at the end, a somewhat more sophisticated understanding, but Mm -hmm. Twain then puts in Tom sort of as if the other understanding is still totally dominant. Yes, yeah. Which stays in place. Mm -hmm. So even if there is some sense of becoming aware of the the kind of failure of a certain kind of narrative, Mm -hmm. the other narrative is still totally powerful and fair. Right, yeah, right, exactly, yeah. So yeah, there's this sort of invasive uh, parody of, of of a narrative that 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 begins to sort of overwhelm the text, yeah. I, if you look at Mark Twain, and we have, you know, this is twenty twenty two, and you know, mm-hmm. Tony Morrison wrote this in the early nineties. Then the culture wars kind of started in the early nineties. <laughs> yeah, they actually focused at that time, in my memory, sort of with people like Jesse Helms, et cetera, on pornography and mm-hmm. kind of federal funding, and pornography became the kind of moment for the culture wars to be ignited because. Mm-hmm. 
contemporary art was considered pornographic. pornographic. Yeah. Usually targeted women, people of color, and mm -hmm. what we call today queer people, like gay people. They were sort of the right. target of this. Yeah. Today's culture wars are very different, and in some ways, mm -hmm. Huck Finn. So, so Twain is is sort of regarded as a complicated book by people. Mm -hmm. Let's say on the left because of the use of the N word. Mm -hmm. Toni Morrison is on lists of legislators to take right. her book, yeah. Beloved, and other books off because it has very complicated characters who mm -hmm. suffer great violence. Yeah. So someone is pregnant from their father or someone gets mm -hmm. raped or there's some kind of violence. So they are saying, right. we, we, we don't want our kids to read these things. Mm -hmm. And behind it is not too concealed, sort of also, this is about race and people should really just not, right. I guess, be taught anything about race. <laughs> right. I so mean, it started yeah. with the Huckleberry Finn. Like, what do yeah. you say? People say, like, oh, unreadable today. You right. Know, Jim is just his caricature. I yeah. Can't, I can't teach that. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the overarching purposeful misreading of what critical race theory is. You know, critical race theory sort of is always around the corner. Uh, Toni Morrison is engaged in critical race theory. Um, you know, and if we were to... Uh, I'll just sort of say, if we were to accept critical race theory as a specifically uh, academic and often specifically like legal um, construction for thinking about systems of oppression, then like a lot of the things that we sort of are finding uh, uh, bugabears about just like aren't in that category. But still, I think it's really interesting that sort of the branches that could perhaps lead us to critical race theory or branches that could lead us to sort of critical engagement with race at all would of course include Toni Morrison and would include sort of the I think the 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 ever present danger of literature is some version of truth telling or some version mm. of explicating um uh uh a possible reality. So the fact that you have um, a father rape their daughter in the bluest eye, the fact that uh, Setha and Beloved commits infanticide, um, that various characters engage in, you know, more technically morally reprehensible acts, in illegal acts, um, you know, I, I think reveals that um, in literature as in real life, almost anything is possible. And a lot of people live in the repercussions of those decisions and of those actions and of uh, those experiences. And I think that um, Morrison is not dangerous because she's filling children with pornographic or uh, destructive ideas or images, but the fact that uh, these things are real and that they happen and that those experiences have traumatic and long-lasting repercussions. And I think that we find characters in these novels um, by Morrison and, of course, by other authors sort of thinking about those ramifications. How does this affect not only those individuals but those communities? And I think that those are revelations that Morrison gives us is not simply that there are acts of violence that are terrifying and traumatic, but that communities have to sort of continue to work, continue to struggle with the fact that these things happen to them. And I think that that is the element that I think really connects Toni Morrison to overarching concepts of black experiences, which are not simply that, you know, Morrison is therefore representative of all black culture or all black literature, but the fact that she is thinking through the fact that a 
constructive um, component of authorship, and specifically Black authorship, is to think about the Black experience and what comes out of uh, a variety of traumas and oppressions and workarounds in yeah. sort of, you know, racism and sexism. Um, something that I think really connects her with Baldwin. And when I think about texts like Beloved or The Bluest Eye, I'm, of course, also thinking about another country um, in the ways that Baldwin is also thinking about how do, you know, not only do children respond to adulthood, but how do adults respond to adulthood? How do they it, survive? It, I had a conversation with Rich Blind from the New School, the teachers at the New School, but another mm-hmm. country. And he... <laughs> said quite a lot about this idea that America needs to grow up. And both mm-hmm. Baldwin and Morrison at different place, places sometimes yeah. say, Morrison says this very beautifully, she says, sometimes you can enter into the beauty of adulthood, mm-hmm. but people don't want to do that, and they stay childlike. And for her, yeah. while most of her books are actually centered on children's experiences right. or collections, mm-hmm. for her, childlike there means a naivete about who we are, mm-hmm. which is usually at the at the incredible expense of others. Mm-hmm. And Rich Blint also said in another country, Baldwin yeah. keeps on saying America must grow up. Right, yeah. And growing up doesn't mean losing one's capacity for creation mm-hmm. or innocence in that way, but using its ignorance, deliberate ignorance. Right. And I think that also takes us back to thinking about Zafir and a Slave Girl, which is that it is a text about a young enslaved black woman and an older white woman who is experiencing the totally imaginary affair between her husband and this enslaved person. And that shows Safira's insecurity and her inability also to imagine um a path out of that that actually engages with her as a character, right? Mm. So uh, the character cannot think of a way to engage with her husband. Instead, she thinks of a way of committing violence against a an enslaved young woman. And I think it's really interesting to sort of think about that sort of impasse in the text, which is that Safira can't do anything. And that is, I think, marked on the fact that she experiences a disability and that she can't really walk, and that. But that also sort of comes out that she she can't think she can't think of a solution but did, to the problem. Is, Morrison says this explicitly in the beginning of mm-hmm. her book. She said, "What tends to be under interrogated and not looked at as much is the impact of racism on the oppressor." Right. She mm-hmm. said, "I'm not going to talk. I don't want to spend my whole time." Morrison says, yeah. "Thinking about white people, but actually <laughs> they're sort of off the hook, mm-hmm. as yeah. if Sophia's." limitation, mm-hmm. and then she uses some form of racism and right. Right, to, to overcome a limitation, which is not overcome at all. Mm-hmm. And Morrison say because she doesn't grow, she just uses this crutch, which is available right. in American culture, you mm-hmm. use racism as something to keep you from growing. Right, yeah. She uses a racist, uh, sexualized power to, yeah. uh, to, to, to try to dominate Nancy. And, you know, thinking about that, it's interesting to think about some of the work of Baldwin, if it's Giovanni's Room or Another Country, where sex and violence is always around the corner and the ways in which characters, um, I think to your point about childhood, are incredibly knowing but like to operate within the world of being naive. And mm-hmm. so David in Giovanni's Room is a queer character, knows he's queer, People around him know he's queer, but he can't come to identify. He can't mm-hmm. come to sort of uh, admit to who he is. And the characters around him sort of constantly say, like, you know, why are you making something that is, why are you making this dirty? Why are you making something loving between two individuals mm-hmm. dirty? And I think there's something 
to Morrison as she's thinking about Saphir and the Slave Girl and a few of her other texts, which uh, suggest maybe not like, why are you making this dirty, but why are you activating, in fact, like, why are you doing the difficult thing, which is trying to make this text work when it doesn't work, when there's this other element that you could simply act to actualize and to use. And so, again, I'm sort of thinking about the fact that as the last novel, um, Saphir and the Slave Girl doesn't use any of the sort of amazing elements that make Catherine great novelists. I think sort of the use of indirect discourse, the sort of humor of uh, misrecognition between characters, you know, it begins in that novel. Mm -hmm. I mean, the fact that Saphira misrecognizes Nancy feels like Catherine, Mm -hmm. but then it doesn't sort of continue into some form of recognition or um, I often see Catherine engaging in some version of gothic horror or some type of uh, characters have to deal with sort of an idea of the sublime. Right. And that that just doesn't happen. I think to your point, yeah. Sophia just sort of stays there and then uh, unceremoniously sort of right. just dies off screen. It, it, when I think about Morrison, I, there's a very famous quote that's on, on the circulars on the internet in a good way. I show it to my students a lot when she says, or maybe it's in one of her books, she says, um, racism is a distraction. Mm, it mm-hmm. keeps us from doing our work. Mm-hmm. She said, I've been writing for 30 years, and then people say, oh, wow, amazing, you can write. And she says, 30 years and five books later, and I'm supposed to start at point zero because I'm not <laughs> supposed to do my work. So she said, don't engage with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think this whole culture wars, these legislation, right. I think that is yeah. a way to distract us, actually, mm-hmm. and to engage with it all the time. It's engaging with people who have no argument. Mm-hmm. They're making it up, this book is good, this book is bad. Right. If, yeah. if you look at Playing in the Dark, so Edgar Allan Poe, Mark Twain... Nathaniel Hawthorne, Melville, Willa Cather, Hemingway, Faulkner, and who else are she in there? And uh, Saul Bellow. Uh-huh. You could cancel all those books because they all have mm-hmm. very volatile, explosive things to say about race in America. Yeah. If you took that canon and mm-hmm. you thought it would be a good course in American literature, you yeah. could say this is totally unteachable, should be canceled because it gets mm-hmm. the wrong ideas into kids' heads. Right, yeah. But I want to stay with this for a moment when she's engaging with this canon. She wants to make this massive intervention and mm-hmm. say the canon has actually been a construction of whiteness mm-hmm. as kind of not visible to itself. Right. As just this yeah. neutral thing. We don't even talk about it. Mm-hmm. Like We don't say it's the white canon. And then right. we had the culture wars, which were good and productive. And mm-hmm. And it used to be this kind of, and there was an argument a couple of years ago in the Times, two years ago, four years ago. I think I actually wrote something to those people. They did a study and said Morrison won the culture wars against Harold Bloom. I, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, it was really stupid <laughs> because it was a study of syllabi and said there are more books by African-American uh-huh. authors than there used to be. And I wrote to them and I said, this is so against the spirit of Morrison. It is, it is painful that you guys are calculating numbers of books written right. and assigned. Yeah. It's painful on both levels. And I said, if you're pitting two people against each other, Bloom and Morrison, at least they read literature. Right, yeah. But I'm kind of interested in what this, this, uh-huh. what she's doing with playing in the dark. Like, mm-hmm. once you've taught it and once you've read it, you cannot quite go back to thinking, right. oh, American literature and there's white po- people, books mm-hmm. by white people, books by black people, and we can sort of... right. Yeah, I mean, I, I think what is proven in whatever post-culture war, and, and I mean that sort of like in a postmodernist sense, which is like we're just in the next part of the culture war more than it's afterwards, which is that um, 
if anyone were to read Morrison, I think either her novels or especially reading Playing in the Dark, it would, yeah, it would be near impossible to go back to these other texts and to sort of accept their canonicity as part of a pure white American culture. I think you would, you, you sort of can't read these texts, I think, after Morrison and not sort of, uh, in the words of Bill T. Jones, like, think about Pip. I mean, like, you, you, you can't so how did people these. manage to do that? <laughs> I mean, and actually, yeah, I, yeah. And I showed you this piece I'm working on on Hemingway. So mm-hmm. in The Sun Also Rises, which has two pretty you know, extreme moments of mm-hmm. the use of the N-word. So right, for, yeah. for our listeners, you know, they have another Hemingway podcast, but he uses the word the N-word 16 times on one page. Mm-hmm. That makes it pretty hard to overlook. Yeah. And then in my, you know, somewhat exhaustive survey of Hemingway criticism, mm-hmm. it has been systematically overlooked. Mm-hmm. And even people who say, I'm going to focus on race and Hemingway, they focus on the Basque country and the right. matadors. And you're thinking, wait, you're an American critic. You're writing about the American novel <laughs> by the self-appointed American patriarch of American writing. Yeah. And you're managing to not see this. So yeah. you're saying after Morrison, you can't not see it. But right. after Morrison, a lot of people still not see something. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, it's one of those things where you want to sort of avoid sort of making a generational claim. But, you know, when I read Hemingway... Um, or read a lot of the canon, I think especially having been doing so much research on blackness in Germany, it's, you know, seeing blackness in a lot of places where it it is incredibly more evident, but then also, you know, relatedly thinking about race, like the the role of Judaism. I mean, the sun also rises is thinking about the fact that there is a, uh, broadly speaking, there is a uh, upstart in the fact that there is a Jewish character who has made a rather successful living in the United States as part of this group, but is also like deeply demonized by this group. And I think it's sort of interesting to think about The Sun Also Rises as a book really thinking about race and thinking about um, gender and thinking about the, the acts of sex since the main character cannot have uh penis and vagina uh, sexual intercourse. And so there's some really interesting ways in which the novel is thinking about normalized processes of, you know, the white, heterosexual, Christian man. And it's interesting to see the ways in which Hemingway actually deals with that being constantly undermined. And that characters are, in fact, incredibly anxious about the other, if the other is an independent woman, if it's about uh, blackness, if it's about uh, the role of of Jewish individuals, then, you know, Hemingway's really interesting. Like, when I when I read The Sun Also Rises, I was, like, really sort of struck by the sort of stereotype of Hemingway as this um, at once every man, but also incredibly strong and virile and, um, you know, I, I sort of like a, a, a literary John Wayne. And then I would read Hemingway. It's like, this man is incredibly insecure and is sort of terrified by everyone around him. What you're saying is interesting <laughs> that Hemingway, The Sun Also Rises. Yeah. Conrad's Heart of Darkness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Fitzgerald's Gatsby were read, I think, largely as existentialist books mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. a psychological crisis for an individual yeah. against the backdrop of all these different things. Mm-hmm. So colonialism in Heart of Darkness, in Gatsby, sort of the rise of post-war sort of materialism, et cetera, the anxiety about fitting in. Gatsby's also Jewish. Mm -hmm. And and we read them today like this, and I'm thinking this is the book about anti-Semitism, about racism, Mm -hmm. about gender anxiety, about America not holding it together at all. Mm -hmm. And instead, for 50 years, the book was read as this is American identity. Right, yeah. And it's interesting what you're saying, that the generational difference, and there was this shift that people felt now, these are psychological novels. 
mm-hmm. and everything else is sociology and politics, and that is just not what how novels should be read. Yeah. And I think today we have a more capacious understanding, and Morton mm-hmm. says, I'm not deciding between politics and art. He's saying it doesn't quite work as art. And yeah. with Hemingway, the most devastating thing she will say about Hemingway, she says they are far more artless representations than in Edgar Allan Poe. And artless, she really wants to hit Hemingway where it'll hurt Hemingway. Mm-hmm. Not right. you're racist, you're ignorant, you're yeah. from Oak Park, Illinois, you don't know anything. <laughs> Because you are not really as great a novelist as you think you want to be. Right, yeah. And I think that that image of Hemingway, of sort of the concise language, there's no uh, purple prose or whatever, I think... I mean, I think it speaks to sort of this idea of American ruggedness, this concept. I, I think that sort of imagines Hemingway as... Having perfected the sentence, I think there's a way in which uh, Hemingway for a long time was sort of seen as having perfected a certain style of writing and the sentence on a sentence level structure, he had sort of nailed it. And I think the sort of apocryphal idea that he wrote the short story, you know, uh, you know, uh, child shoes never worn, which he, he, he did not write, but everyone <laughs> thinks he did. And anyway, I think that there is there is an interesting element to the fact that Morrison sort of calls him out or at least sort of. Uh, signals that um, whatever art form in terms of literature that Hemingway offers us, it's not as strong or as structured within um, uh, American prose as it should be. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Not as structured or as it could be. Uh, yeah, like I guess it could be. be. Let me just to state. Yeah. She says, it is there, it ought to be there because it props up this fantasy of whiteness as mm-hmm. sort of like identical to itself and having no shadow, having no, mm-hmm. having, having to do no work actually. Right. And she yeah. said, but there's much more and it's all in Hemingway. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think she's, she keeps on saying it's in Hemingway. I'm not inventing it. I'm not mm-hmm. sort of thinking, oh, wow, this character may or may not be not quite white. She said, it says everything there. Right. Yeah. And it's kind of funny when you're taught, I mean, I was taught this book in an American high school near Philadelphia, I don't, I didn't know it was about anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. And I've read essays. I read one essay yeah. where someone talks about Robert Cohen and calls him the entire essay a romantic. And they never uh-huh. even mention that he's Jewish. Uh-huh. Like, it's just not mentioned in a critical essay in the 1990s. Yeah. And, 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 and Morrison is really light about this. She says, yeah, people have systematically managed to overlook these things. I'm not yeah. really going into this. Yeah. Like she takes on the entire field of literary criticism, and she <laughs> yeah. says, "Yeah, people don't look at these things." Yeah, and I, I wish, I, I wish I really had a response to why it took so long to see it, because it feels like you know there's a sort of, at times, banal argument that like you know the systems and structures of racism or other forms of of oppression have made it made it impossible for people to see this. But I, I wonder if there's another way to get to that sort, to, to get to Toni Morrison without sort of saying it's generational or you have to have been a black woman author who has been writing uh, these amazing novels for, for 20, 30 years by the time uh, she, she gives this lecture. And I'm having a hard time sort of thinking of another answer. And I'm not trying to like, like well, Occam's Razor would say then, well, Toni Morrison, uh, it's generational. But I, I wonder... I think it's like a paradigm yeah. shift kind of thing. We're talking uh-huh. about sort of Morrison changes something. She has a yeah. stature, she has the authority, she has the knowledge, she's mm-hmm. a writer. But I think what you're saying maybe also, there had always been other voices. They had always, they just were not quite foregrounded. Yeah. And 
people had always said, really, this book is about a new woman. Mm -hmm. I mean, and <laughs> people just were left out in a way. Yeah. It's sort of... I interviewed Joan Scott, one of the historian, mm. who has mm -hmm. this very famous essay called Gender as a Critical Category, a useful mm -hmm. categorical for critical analysis in history. Great. And she says gender can be applied, must be applied all the time, mm -hmm. not just when we're looking at women or gender right. relationships, all the time. It's useful. In a way, what you're saying, is it a generational thing and people didn't see it before? Maybe they saw it. Maybe they had different tools to articulate it. Yeah. And... Um, there are moments, and you can find these moments. There are moments of reviews or Hemingway right. in his letters with his editors or something. He's working things out all the time. Right. I mean, The Battler, one of his famous stories, and The mm -hmm. Gatto stories, which are very hard to read today for me, actually. Yeah. I changed the Wikipedia entry the other day because The Battler, one of the characters, was in the Wikipedia entry referred to by the N-word. Uh -huh. Without quotation marks. Just there. This is 2022. Yeah. So I'm going to think Hemingway people are still producing it, and they right. actually think, well, that's Hemingway's language. Yeah. It's, yeah. So in some ways, your question is really good to say, okay, is it, does it take the genius of Morrison? Yeah. Or in generational kind of mm -hmm. means, it's a fad, it'll go away again, there'll be another right. generation after that. But it's. Yeah. It actually, so what, having this conversation is making me think about um, some current research I'm doing, which I think it's really pertinent to think about playing in the dark, which is that I've been doing some research around uh, Eugene O'Neill's play Emperor Jones, which is um, uh, a short play. Uh, is the, what, is, what year is this about? The f 1920. 20s, okay. Is it 1920? It's 1919, it's, yeah, it's 1920. I'm sure okay. both those years are actually wrong. I'm probably yeah. like 1917. But... Um, Anyway, it's a it's a it's a short play about uh, a black American man who has uh, usurped uh, power on an unnamed uh, uh, island black nation, and basically the um, uh, indigenous people of the island rise up to 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 uh, kill him. But it's really about a sort of psychological profile as. Uh, Brutus Jones, the emperor, sort of begins to wander through the jungle and has these visions of his past and what has sort of led him to sort of take over this island nation. Um, it's really fascinating. Uh, I think probably many people would find it inflammatory at this point, but it's it's a really fascinating. And it was really uplifted by the black community in the 1920s as sort of an example of a white author giving a black character played by black actors, um, some pathos that was sort of outside of the minstrel tradition. Mm. And um, it famously, uh, the second actor to play Emperor Jones was Paul Robeson, and it was seen as sort of the launching pad for Paul Robeson's career. But what I wanted to talk about is sort of the interesting behind-the-scenes production usurpations that happened, that I think, presage some of the things you might see in Morrison, thinking about... Um, the African presence within white literature, which is that the first actor to play uh, Emperor Jones was Charles Gilpin, a famous, one of the most well-renowned black actors of the early 20th century. And uh, O'Neill's play uses the N-word a lot. And as Gilpin played the role on stage, he kept not saying it, and he purposely dropped it out, continued to sort of change the role to sort of fit 
to, to fit what he thought blackness was. And so he was like... Oh, 1920, this is not 2020. Yeah, yeah. And this black character was like, I'm not saying the N-word. I'm mm-hmm. going to... I don't know if he said Negro or something else, mm-hmm. but um, it was a really interesting element to the production of this play that on one level we can see this sort of mm-hmm. quote-unquote progressive uh, elements of a white playwright not using the minstrel, creating a different idea of blackness. And as black theater critics talked about, like a serious role instead of a comedic role. And, but then we have this sort of interesting, almost ironic, um, uh, trickster-like element in Gilpin undermining the sort of seriousness of this play by by not playing by the rules and sort of changing the rules. And I'm seeing this as like very similar on a performance level to what Morrison talks about in recognizing what black characters are doing in white authored work, that Charles Gilpin is enacting, I know what this play is actually doing and I'm not going Mm -hmm. to go through this. I'm going to point out how race is actually operating in this by not saying the the most obvious word to sort of mark the race in the play. So I think that perhaps thinking about previous generations, we can see elements of, you know, not not the... um, Form of the lecture or the book in which Morrison's making very explicit these claims, but perhaps there are these enactments and embodiments mm-hmm. of various actors, dancers, performers, uh, lecturers in which they are not playing by the rules and are actually calling out those structures of, you know, this is the white canon, this is white constructions of race. Um, is anyone else noticing how race is actually operating here? I think you might. Our colleague Deb Willis has given some lectures mm. on Gone with the Wind and mm-hmm. Hattie McDaniel, what she does to that role. Yeah. So you're saying kind of from within that space, and I think this is the the gist of playing in the dark as an academic, as a from within the space of so-called white culture, mm-hmm. which Morrison wouldn't accept as a right. term at all. Right, yeah. Let's say American cultural production. There are moments of both pointing out the the sort of shortcomings of this construction mm-hmm. right. and not even to sort of criticize or oppose it, to sort of say, this is, I can just make this apparent. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the strength of Morrison and what you're saying about this, this actor doing yeah. this. I can make apparent to you what doesn't mm-hmm. really work mm-hmm. here and I'll leave it up to you to work this out. Right. Not I'm going to correct yeah. it and give you mm-hmm. the correct version because it, this is also, there's no correct version. Right. Like I think, I would assume in this play, like it's a it's a stage adaptation with an actor and then Paul mm-hmm. Robeson. I don't know what he did in that play, but then it goes through his iterations. Is it still performed today? This kind of play. It was performed, I think, a few years ago, okay. but it, it is still definitely performed, and it it does hold a sort of interesting place in theater as sort of being. Um, I think at times it's sort of misrepresented as sort of the very first time like serious black acting happened. I think it's the first time in which a quote unquote serious drama of the 20th century within modernism right. sort of plays the black I mean you sort of like the, 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 ca- the caveats on, have to sort of be added theater and modernism right theater, yeah right? <laughs> we have a hundred years before actually right yeah I think on Bleecker and Mercer Street we had the first African theater right yeah, play, yeah the, which uh, was shut down by an Irish mob of youngsters or something like that yeah yeah the history of Ira Aldridge and the creation yeah. of the um, African Grove Theater the African yeah. Grove Theater which yeah. is right around the corner here. yeah but the interesting thing and uh, I won't won't stay on it too much is like the African Grove Theater kept changing places partially because of you know racist mobs and stuff like that but I think it also speaks to sort of that 
element of adaptation and hybridity that it wasn't simply like, oh, burned down, it doesn't exist. It's like actually it was, it was movable. It could actually it's sort not of the survive. End. So it's not a tragic story. There's the end of that moment, right. 1820s, when we're done. It's like right. actually there's a tradition. But what I'm saying is that what we get from Morrison and these examples you're giving about mm-hmm. O'Neill play, and the, the actor's name is Gil? Uh, Charles Gilpin. Gilpin. That there's a kind of deeper tradition. I think the mm-hmm. Morrison in this kind of very powerful and gracious way says, "This is a deeper reading of America," mm-hmm. and here I'm done. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And she kind of says, "This is a deeper reading." And in some ways, if yeah. you don't want to read this, she basically this is this is Morrison's gesture. And I met her three or four times, and mm-hmm. she had this gesture, and she said. If you don't accept this, this is not my problem. Mm-hmm. Like right. this, this is deeper, and that's it. Yeah, yeah. There, there's a way in which I, I've heard similar stories of sort of um, not cutting, not, 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 not foreclosing conversation, but you know, what do you want me to do if you don't want to have the conversation I'm having? Le- saying this is the evidence. This is my reading. Mm-hmm. You can quarrel with it, or don't. But. If you don't, then that's your choice. Right, yeah. And she's not convinced by not quarreling, which is falling again into kind of embarrassed silence. All these ne- yeah. all these evasions, which mm-hmm. American culture is really good at. Right, yeah. And I think partly why I keep on asking about this sort of where are we in, in today's culture, mm-hmm. because Morrison doesn't leave a person like me, like a white person, a space to say, oh, it's awkward, or I have no mm. authority to talk about it, or I don't right. know anything, or yeah. I couldn't teach an African-American book, or I don't mm-hmm. know from race. Yeah. Because she said, well, that isn't that the easiest way out? Mm-hmm. To both claim you want to do good, but, oh, I'm, in, I'm right. inhibited by you people. Mm-hmm. For her, this, yeah. I think, produces this kind of, yeah. it's not frustration or exasperation yeah. at all. She's just indifferent. Right. It's just yeah. like, okay, you don't want to talk about it. I know you don't want to. You have never talked about it. Right. So you don't keep, you keep not talking about it and making all mm-hmm. sorts of excuses for yourself because that is your whole project. Right, yeah. That's what she says whiteness is, making mm-hmm. all these excuses, explanations, rationalizations right. for yeah. not doing the work. Yeah, and I think, you know, that's, it is ironically sort of within literature that, of course, that's that's the political project, which is like, when are you going to deal with, uh, any element of history, uh, when, are, when, is, when does this get um, not even resolved but acknowledged? And I think we constantly see in the 2020s a real uh, disregard, I would say just a disregard for history and I think almost a disregard for culture in sort of the elements of, um, you know, I was looking at this one uh, uh, right-wing pundit sort of saying, you know, didn't we figure out sexism and racism in the 20th century? And I was I was like, I, I wish we had. And <laughs> I think our experience is really, when we hear something like that, yeah, our experience is very different because teaching Mm-hmm. in a university makes you realize we haven't worked out anything. Mm-hmm. And that's a good thing in a certain way. Because yes. also, if I thought, oh, we worked it out and I'm going to give the lesson plan to this next generation, mm-hmm. uh, I don't quite think we have any, under any illusion, we've worked mm-hmm. everything out. So in some right. ways, when you're teaching, you realize nothing has really been worked out. And not that we then problematize and puzzle everything up to like right. to infinity. We say like, no, actually, there's still mm-hmm. huge moral questions, political questions, right. questions yeah. of coexistence that we have yet to work out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that that's really, I think that's a really important part. I think the, the idea of 
figuring out moral questions feels, I think it often feels settled because I think people often sit in their morality. Morality isn't something that they are actively engaging in unless there's a dilemma in front of them. And I think sort of being able to say there are not even specifics of morality, but sort of where do the big moral claims we hold true, where do they lead us? So if we, you know, uh, if it's uh, facetious or not, if we all agree racism is bad, that doesn't mean we have all agreed upon reparations. It does not mean we've all agreed upon uh, certain cultural uh, norms or cultural experiences, but in fact, like, reveal these deep fissures about what happens next when it comes to uh, those types of moral claims. And, of course, there are people who think absolutely they know the solution and it's right and that everyone should follow what they're doing. And, of course, there are people who are, again, being absolutely facetious in what they think the solutions are. But I, I think that Back to Morrison, I think that what she does is, you know, and you said it was a mic drop, and I agree that sort of this, uh, these lectures really open up the, um, some element of the core of American literature or American culture. I, I think you're sort of, I think you're right to sort of point out, like, Morrison's not too, uh, does not get tripped up about concepts of whiteness as much as that she's focused on where do we find different types of valuations around race and how uh, and how how is race operated and used. And I think that that's actually incredibly helpful outside of the novel, but is also, I think, inherent to sort of thinking about the American novel, which is like, why does this, why does this black character act like an automaton? Why does this black character uh, create so much fear even though they haven't done anything? Um, I taught last year uh, Sylvia Plath's um, The Bell Jar, and I forget every single time there's a black nurse in that novel hmm. who appears near the very end when she's in the um, psychiatric ward. And can't pretend that I remember. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna get it wrong how she <laughs> describes him, but like she basically describes him as sort of this um, almost. Uh, uh, like almost as a minstrel figure, he's sort of this big-lipped, smiling, big-eyed character, and you're sort of surprised in this, you know, uh, classic uh, taken on as feminist text that there's this sort of really hmm. disturbing image of a black man. Um, but it also, of course, appears after she's had sex for the first time, and so there's something really interesting about this. Uh, white American daughter of a German immigrant character who's had this well, pretty traumatic experience of sex, and she is soon uh, finds herself being watched by a black man. And so I think there's something I, I haven't figured out, but I think there's something returning to play in the dark. I would be sort of interested. That's to spend what more I think time Morrison gives you a kind of a way to start thinking about it because she maps these kind of rhetorical moves where people do what characters are. They're not stereotypes, but they actually yeah. they're much more than stereotypes. They are maybe right. archetypes. And that's what I found really useful when I was working on Hemingway yeah. or working on Fitzgerald and Fitzgerald famous scene the yellow limousine with three right, African Americans yeah. passes them on the Queensboro Bridge and goes into Manhattan first mm -hmm. and yeah. I think that's the end of that novel and that's the beginning of the new America mm -hmm. it's like yeah. they actually pass them but Morrison gives us a way to see these things which have been deliberately not seen mm -hmm. so in some ways in Sylvia Plath you can now say what do I do with this right yeah rather than I'm scandalized oh my god this is <laughs> awkward and bad right Morrison says well no, actually, its badness is either a failure on the narrative level, and mm -hmm. that's important, 
Words Badness has serves a real purpose here mm-hmm. rather than sort of I can't handle this. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I you know it's it's interesting in my experience that I will sort of point out something, you know, like I'll be honest, that's an incredibly minor part of Platt's novel. I think it's two pages, but like it's it's well, something it's, it's something she to stumble over. It, yeah. Put it like that. You know, it, it it feels like, you know, uh, I, I I think maybe Morris would agree with this. You know, if you were like running around at the track and all of a sudden on your thir- third round, there was a, a tree log in the middle, you would still wonder like, wait, why is there a tree log here? Yeah. And even if it's gone by the time you're doing your fourth lap, you know, you would still in your mind, you'd be like, why was why was there a tree log all of a sudden? <laughs> right. And who put it there? Why was it there? And why one why was it why was it a difficulty and also uh am i going to try to put it out of my mind right. and and i think that i think that that's sort of what more than gets at that work that's necessary to keep it out of our mind yeah which sort of and and morrison probably says it's like a little bit of a splinter it stays there right or a moat yeah. or something like that and you know, it stays there we right. pretend it's not and that's the great pretense in america yeah. like oh we can overlook these things right which is sort of interesting just think about the moat in the eye which is that you know that's a part of um Part of Sula is when she catches her friend having an affair with her husband. Is that all of a sudden there's there's this literal spot in her eye mm-hmm. where she just can't see something. Oh right. And and uh, and uh, I I don't know if Morrison's thinking back to her own novel, but I think it is this interesting element, which is like when something proves uh, proves a problem. You know what what perhaps on a subconscious level do you do to not recognize that there's a problem? Yeah. yeah. Well, Paul, I want to thank you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, we could have another conversation on Sula or yeah. Bluest Eye or any of the Morrison novels. So, I, again, <laughs> this is uh, this was a conversation with uh, Paul Edwards, who is now assistant professor of English and Dramatic uh, Literature at New York University, my colleague. Yeah. It's really great to see you in person. It's great seeing you. Thank you. And for the listeners, I also want to point out the podcast is hosted at the newbooksnetwork.com, which is really awesome. So if you find it there, that's really great, which is a review site for academic and other titles. A very powerful kind of place for us. I'm very happy that they're hosting us. And you can find also information at thinkaboutit.podcast on Instagram, uli.bear on Instagram, or at ulibear on Twitter. And I post all the new episodes. And on a website that is linked to all these Instagram pages, especially at thinkaboutit.podcast, I'll put notes about you, Paul, your publications, some notes on playing in the dark. So people who want to do further reading, um, they can get all that information on, on my social media and web presence. Wonderful. I, I'm sure I'll send you an email with all the corrections for page numbers of uh, everything I said. <laughs> no, I really, I really, really value and appreciate this conversation, and it's really, um, it's especially fun and exciting to talk to someone who's as committed to teaching and, you know, changing in a way what we think the canon holds. I think there's much more to discover. Oh well, thank you, and uh, I look forward to coming back Great. sometime. Thanks. Yeah.